This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. G'day, everybody. It is with great joy that I can say that this episode features Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan is the founding guitarist in Cradle of Filth. He was there for the band's earliest days through the demos and onto the album that started the revolution, The Principle of Evil Made Flesh. It is so great to finally chat with Paul and hear his insights into many aspects of the band's formative epoch. The years of anticipation of our meeting, they've finally paid off. He's a tremendous fella and it has been well worth the wait. He is still active and you'll hear all about his current projects. And there are links to his pages in the show notes as well. So please support what he's doing now. It is fucking awesome. I have a tingle down my spine that this one has actually happened. So here he is, the hidden architect of one of the most important bands in extreme metal, Paul Ryan. Hello. Here he is. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm all right. How are you? Great. Thanks a lot for doing this. It's much appreciated. No problem at all. Thanks for asking. What's been happening lately apart from life in, uh, you know, the usual family and all, uh, family work and all of that sort of stuff, mate, is uh, you've been keeping busy with music, I see. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've been doing a few things musically. Um, lockdown um, gave me a bit of time away from what I usually do work-wise um, mm-hmm. to actually kind of focus a little bit more on music again, which is nice. And um, one thing I'd been meaning to do for a long time was actually get a computer to actually dedicate to doing music on um mm. because a lot of the recording that i'd done was all real to real um mm. and adats and stuff pre kind of logic and pro tools and stuff like that so i'd been doing a bit of demoing on garage band like on my phone basically and um i wanted to get logic and learn how to record properly which is what i did and that kind of um spurned me to do some more stuff um a bit of dungeon synth came out of that because having to have a kind of a midi controller to mm. make it all work that kind of got me into that way of doing things so it kind of spiraled a little bit from there really and um i've had a lot of fun doing it congratulations so it's gatekeeper isn't it your new project that's a game master yeah, game yeah. master sorry yeah yeah, yeah that's I, right I, I had it in the background. I've had it in the background on a, for a few nights now, and it's okay, very engaging stuff. Okay, so for people listening, go across to Bandcamp and check out what Paul's been up to. But you, you do have the Dungeon Synth, but there's a bit of Synth Wave creeping into which I just adore. Yeah, and there's a bit of Synth Wave, and yeah. um, it, it, it's an interesting thing. Like um, one of my kind of long-term friends, a guy called Staff Glover, who's he's been like a bass player in Extreme Noise Terror, on and off for years and, and we've known each other probably since we were kind of you know 17 18 years old um he's a phenomenal kind of bass player and a, a really great guitar player as well and um we'd been doing a few bits and bobs prior to uh to lockdown just for fun and um we wanted to go in the studio and do some stuff and and essentially one of the things again we what lockdown did is is allow me to kind of get back on the drum kit and actually just play some drums properly because i've had a, a v drum kit at home for years and kind of mucked around on it and kind of played around on it but it's really been oh god it would have been 20 or 30 years that i'd seriously been on a kit and, and done any real playing and um and again 
kind of just kind of got back on the kit and and started practicing again. And we had a few jams like together around at my house. And then we went into a studio and there was a a producer called John Hannon who sadly passed away. Um had a really cool old school kind of analog studio um but with you know pro tools and some modern bits of kit as well and we did a few sessions down there and uh, essentially what happened is that what we did from those sessions and what i played around with with the kind of dungeon synth stuff that became the project um and again it gave me the opportunity to do some vocals and to, to kind of bring it together cohesively under kind of one thing and that's been great fun you know, um, mm. again, a friend of mine's label wanted to stick a few cassette tapes out. It's like, yeah, cool. If you want to do that, we did, you know, 50 cassettes, which kind of just went straight away. And then he did, he wanted to do a couple of runs of vinyl, which he did. Um, and yeah, we've ended up doing a couple of records and a bunch of vinyl and cassettes. And um, that's been, again, it's just been good fun. Mm. Been nice to kind of reconnect with uh, doing music again. Yeah, and it, it sounds fantastic. Another thing too, another aspect aspect of what you're doing with Gatemaster is there's some black metal there, some old school black metal. So here's a yeah. question for you. Yeah. Is this is this new material or is this some stuff that you wrote back in the day that you brought into the present? Um a good question, actually. I think it's it's stuff kind of um for a better word, exercising a few demons from back then, I suppose. Um I did a did a project again with Stafford and um Chris is the singer from Winter Fileth. We did a project called Nine Covens, which yeah had a lot of stuff I would say that was harboring over from back in the kind of early nineties. And this is probably a little bit of an extension from that in terms of some of the black metal side of it. I think it's you know as a music form, it's very expressive. Um, and I think from a creative perspective, I mean, look, you play yourself, you know what it's like mm. to get the creative taps on. I think personally. It's not like I'm Adele that has to go through some big breakup to get the emotion to uh, <laughs> the right music. But at the same point, she's she's an amazing example of the the purity in in how I think you know a lot of inspiration is, and it's that kind of that raw emotion that can kind of really drive you if you play music to kind of get out there and do stuff. For me, I found the whole kind of lockdown experience and what was going on in the world being even crazier than normal very emotive outside of having the time it gave me a lot of time and inspiration to um, or a lot of focus and inspiration to actually really um express it musically and um that kind of kind of you know for a better word it kind of turned the creative taps back on again um so they hadn't really truly been on i, I think a little bit on the nine coven stuff but they hadn't really truly been on since the the kind of gradle days really and I think the Gatemaster stuff for me is, is the first thing that I've done musically since Gradle of Filth that's got the true essence of what we were all doing then or certainly what I was doing then within that construct. Um, and I think you can kind of hear that. Um, it's very it's very pure in terms of, it's very honest, you know, in terms of the dungeon scene stuff and in terms of the, the black metal stuff, when we went in and recorded, you know, I really enjoyed basically smacking the fuck out of the drum kit in the studio um and just really kind of like going for it um especially when it came to some of the kind of you know a couple of the longer tracks with blast beats and stuff that for me was was hugely gratifying to do and record and actually capture um after a lot of practice um so yeah anyone who's checking out any of that stuff it, that is it's about as honest as you can get 
Yeah, and it's I can I could hear that it was an extension of the stuff that you'd written early on, and I'm talking way back on orgiastic pleasures foul this sort of thing. You can hear the link. There's no question there. It's just right well, it's there. Interesting and, to say that. Yeah, and and the quality though, it's it's like you can hear that your riffs were always rolled gold back in the day, anyway, and they are now too. So you haven't lost your touch. Thank you. That's, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I mean, it's the same taps that were switched on. I don't think the approach has, has ever really been different. It's um, for me. I always used to, I suppose, in the early cradle days, it wasn't so much uh, kind of. How can I put it? I went for a phase. I think certainly around principle into dusk where there was a lot of heavy kind of um, soft drug use. I would say getting stoned a lot. A lot mm. of that stuff was written basically. I mean, in particular dusk was all written when, you know, the, the ritual for us is that we would get stoned before practicing. Uh, and a lot of stuff was written stoned. And I, I do believe that, um, you know, obviously, uh, Drugs have been a vehicle for musicians for for years and years and years to to kind of kind of express themselves. And and I'm not trying to condone taking drugs to write music, but I'm talking about my personal experience. That when I was younger, certainly never really did anything more than weed, if I'm honest. But got heavily into that in terms of a a use to kind of um, you know turn those taps on. And I suppose if you you can you can kind of get deeper on that. In terms of magic, and in terms of what how people have used, you know, um, influences and, and substances to kind of enhance, um, you know, what they do in magic in the same way. Um, like Alan Moore, uh, who some people know as, you know, a kind of comic writer, um, V for Vendetta and, and stuff like that, but mm. he's who he's a ceremonial magician as well. You know, um, he was quoted saying that he he believes that all, you know, um, or. Uh, Exact quote I'm, I can't remember, but he was basically saying that all musicians are magicians because they create magic. And mm. from my perspective, there's there's a lot of truth in that because I think that you are physically creating something that didn't exist. You know, there's a magical element to it. So the reason I'm kind of making that point is that you know, for me, when I was younger, using substances to kind of almost relax myself into a state to, for that purity to come out made a lot of sense. I think it's a lot harder doing it without the influence of anything. I mean, you can do it in your teenage years because you've got so much stuff flying around in you. There's so much inspiration flying around in you. Again, it's a good vehicle of release. And obviously, um, back in the early 90s, we were lucky to to come through a time when that the evolution of that music was hugely inspirational. Um, one of the things I feel really, really privileged to have been through is that, that period, not through... Um, I mean, yes, through being in Cradle and kind of uh, riding that wave around stuff at the time. But personally, as a music fan, to be around when, you know, thrash metal didn't exist, death metal didn't exist, mm-hmm. you know, grindcore didn't exist, and to go through the evolution of all of that, I mean, there's no wonder there was so much great music at the time because how could you not be inspired by it, especially when you're in your teenage years and if you've got a certain amount of ability on your instrument, that's just going to come flooding out. Um, So going back to my original point with the Gate Master stuff, that's the first time I think that um, those taps have been put on, but in a way that wasn't used 
by me getting stoned. It was just the natural world around me influencing me and having the time to kind of uh, turn that creativity back on again. And actually, I think that's the first time that that I've looked at anything that I've done and gone, okay, exactly like you say, it's, it's a true true incarnation of of me in terms of what I do musically or have done musically. Um, but I'd say probably even purer because it wasn't done in any state of of, of being stoned, mm. you know. Um, even when we recorded Principal and Dusk, um, in fact, most of the records that, that I, I recorded, I was pretty stoned doing it, um, which I, you know, I enjoyed. It was good fun. Mm. But, it, but when I think back on it, I would now not go into the studio stoned or I wouldn't get stoned in the studio myself if it works for some people fantastic but now I, I much I kind of going and recording that in the studio I got even more satisfaction out of it through doing it in a sober state okay you raised many interesting points there and here's one here's the first one mm. I want to bring up just throughout my conversations I'd formed an impression that you wrote principle and Paul, the other Paul, Paul Alender, had written the majority of Dusk, but it doesn't sound like that's the case. It sounds like it was more of a band effort from the the musicians. Yeah. 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 On both. Yeah. I mean, I would say, look, just to reiterate what I said, you know, the ritual that we had is we would get together and we would, you know, get stoned within or before practice. And there was a magical element to it. Um, I can't speak for what the band has done prior to our departure, but certainly you know, there was a connection between the way we approached it and the way the music came out. There was a magic, there was definitely a magical element to it. Uh, and that's purposeful. Um, I think there was a lot of influence of magic and occult um, happening at the time, you know, through music and personally through philosophy and things that everyone was reading. Certainly when it came to Danny and Paul and myself and a few of the other people, we were very much influenced by a lot of that stuff. But there was a purposeful, I use the word ritual, because we would, that's what we would do. You wouldn't, there was never a time you'd just turn up, rock up to practice and it would be like, oh, we're just having a bit of a jam. There mm. would be, it would, there would be that kind of ritualistic element to it. And I think that comes out in the music. Um, it's funny with Dusk in particular, um, I went by, because um, I'm still in touch with Danny and still friends with Danny, and um, I went by the old rehearsal room, which still exists. Um, where we used to rehearse. But when we rehearsed there, it was the back of a, an old pub called the rising sun. And, um, it was just an old shed essentially or an old, an old kind of big kind of old mm. say storage, whatever you would call it. Now it's been made into swanky flats, but the building that that was still in, which I guess is some kind of storage unit, it still exists. Um, but we used to meet down there. That's where that all got written. And, that very much was a kind of almost a kind of a collective ritualistic, I would say, um, experience in terms of the way that we were doing it. Um, that probably sounds a lot darker and a lot kind of more magical than it actually was. But the essence of it is that we were definitely getting ourselves into a space to write. And I, I personally would say that it was a fairly collective experience. Um, from the musical perspective, my brother and myself and Paul and Rob, um, you know, and Nick, we would we would all have a certain synergy in what we would and how we would we would connect with each other. And I don't actually remember there being much bickering between this particular riff or that particular riff. You know, the way a lot of stuff was written was in that environment. And we would kind of 
you know, vibe off of each other and there would be certain certain riffs. I, I definitely remember between Paul and myself, us getting to a stage with Dusk where there was almost like a kind of a, a kind of a synchronicity, a telepathy between us in the, in the way in the way that we played with each other. Um, and like I say, I, I can't speak for what's happened post that point, but people have said to me many times, oh, you know, the earlier stuff, it's got a real magic to it. Well, that's fairly literal because I think it did. You know, um, because mm. the way it was constructed in that environment was it was constructed in a very um, uh, kind of, I would almost say like a sacred space. It was like it was it was a special environment, you know, and I've certainly not had that experience post that in anything I've done musically where I've gone to a rehearsal room and, and jammed with anyone. It's, it's been, that was very unique. Something that's that special and important to you, how did you feel when the Stuart version came out? Um, I was, well, obviously at the time, you know, you're younger and you're a little bit, things are a little bit more dramatic, but at the same point, I kind of understood, um, that things were taking their natural course based upon decisions that we were made. So I never really had too much of an issue with it really, to be honest. Um, you know, it was lovely to see Dusk and the original brace come out, uh, sorry, Dusk and her original, uh, embrace original come out. Scene, yeah. 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 Original sin, sorry, come out. Um, and then see the original recordings come out. And I actually kind of curated that with Dan and the release, which was oh, you know, again okay. lovely to do that as well. Um, but yeah, I think it was, it just, it, everything kind of played its part. And again, I, I've always taken a, a bit of a, um, I suppose a pragmatic viewpoint on it. Um, that things, yeah, things, that things are meant to be the way they're meant to be. You know, if you make decisions and if you make you you choose a certain way of a certain path of walking, then you have to accept that things are not going to be within your influence to keep on um, how they were. Very pragmatic. And I noticed, I remember talking to your brother, Ben, fantastic fellow, by the way. He was very diplomatic about why you guys left. You provided some perspective around it there, though. But can you remember what the catalyst from your view? Can you remember what the catalyst yeah, was? I mean, look, I think... As you get a bit older, you look back on your younger selves and you say you have a, a very different um, viewpoint. And I think that, again, going back to what we were just talking about, there was a lot of emotion involved. You know, there was a lot of kind of, there was a real connection between all of us. I think I'd say the short version of it, um, which again, ironically ended up scoping my life quite dramatically post the band, the business aspect of the music mm. Um, kind of took over because that can be all consuming. Um, and I think that kind of tarnished the true essence of what we were doing in terms of how we all were. And I think there were a lot of influences around us that were, um, had their own agenda. And I think that kind of sullied, you know, the kind of purity that we had amongst each other. Um, and I always felt like that. I never felt it was the a, a certain individual that was making a decision for X. I could always see that it was the outside influences around people because obviously what we were creating was was a kind of magical thing and it was connecting with people. Um, and that, that obviously attracts people around it. Um, that started off a very different journey for me in terms of trying to work out the way the industry worked because obviously back then there was no internet um, and it was it was like a very kind of almost like a dark art, the music industry, in terms of the mm -hmm. way it operated very much and so. the characters within it. 
um, which, I, like I say, ironically, has kind of shaped a career for me outside of, you know, since I've left the band um, in that part of the um, the scene. So, yeah, I think there's not really a straight answer to it because there was many things happening at the time. Um, and I think it, it was it didn't take too long after leaving the band and going through a fairly similar process in um, The Blood Divine with people around that that things kind of connected in more um, in terms of what was happening with this at the time. But I would say there was a kind of a fairly short period that that was all kind of happening. What was my kind of snapshot on it is that we had, you know, when it came to the demos, you know, Dan and I went to school with each other. Essentially the band was formed. I wouldn't say so much it was our school band, but we met through school and we met as young teenagers. Um, that in itself is a very kind of special period in time for most people. It certainly was for us. And then, you know, that in conjunction with being around the scene at the time and the way things were evolving, I used to really love tape trading, getting all the zines, you know, that side of it again was another element of it that had a real um, kind of magical element to it. I'll keep using that word because that's, that's the only way I can describe it. It's kind of, as a young teenager, you're getting zines through the post my daily kind of uh, routine was at my parents house there was a post office at the end of the road i would get cassette tapes through the through the mail zines through the mail and i'd be furiously taping things and doing whatever else and going to the post office every day and that side of it as well was was very kind of um was a driving force behind stuff and then when things really started to take off when we did principal, when all the stuff around that, that was a really wonderful time. That went into dusk. And it was like the point after dusk is when going back to what we were just talking about, the outside influences, I think, came into play there. And that kind of sullied what we were doing at the time in terms of our kind of personal connection with each other, you know. And so it's not it's not anything that I've ever um really blamed anyone personally for and certainly none of the people that came in after me um nothing against them whatsoever nothing you know it's the, that's a, a completely separate thing that was very you know obviously sad to see Stuart um passing um you know recently and um you know I think there's been some fantastic musicians through the band um you know it's a it's a compliment a compliment to us the level of people that have gone through because mm. you know i think if any old joe could have just gone in there and played what we were playing then it, it would speak for itself no i agree yeah yeah you set the bar um, very high very early on and just just what you're talking about there with regards to some of the external influences just yeah. naming you know I'll, I'll name the names neil harding or what's he what's his what's his uh yeah Alter Ringo, yeah frater nile yeah yeah is this the coca situation or something else uh, no, no, not him. Um, not Neil was very close with us, um, and I think you know he was always he was always very true in spirit um, in terms of what we were doing. Um, you know, we had a couple of managers at the time that were were kind of you know, I would say, how can I put it, influencing the way things were going uh, that were older than us uh, and that should have probably had more responsibility to what we were doing. Um, Neil was always really cool. Um, he was the one who actually found us in terms of signing the band. And, um, you know, he was a kind of, you know, an, an influence within the kind of circle of, of how we were. 
And um, I haven't spoken to him for a long time, but periodically I've always bumped into Neil over the years and it's always been wonderful to see him. Uh-huh. And when you're talking about some managerial types who maybe you're applying undue influence, would this influence be around where publishing dollars are directed, this sort of thing? Well, I just think the business in general, you know, I think it, I see it now with what I do, you know, sometimes, especially when it comes to, um, well, I say that it's a different world now because you've got the internet, you can click on and find out what's going on anytime you want. Um, back then, I think there was a certain duty of care when it came to people in the industry, when it comes to younger bands, because you've got, you have got a position of influence and control and you're in a position of trust you know because you attain knowledge that other people don't and can't easily attain themselves um so you know as diplomatic as i can because i'm not gonna, not going to be on here slandering anyone there was a couple of characters um that were around us that i think got in the way of the equilibrium between the band and that came from the business aspect of it coming into it Mm. Now that's not you know a unique thing that happens all the time uh, in history in bands, but I think you know it would have been lovely for us to have just had a, f- a few more years where we could have been away from that aspect of it um, because I think because we, it was blowing up at the time that will happen very quickly, um, and I you know in the position that I work in now with my kind of job you know, I, I take it very seriously of having that duty of care around people that I work with um, and being a trusted person that they can actually have a conversation with that's going to get given honest opinion and, and have their best interest at heart, you know, and that's something that comes from that time of having gone through the other experience of being around people that in hindsight probably didn't have my best interest at heart, you know, or maybe they thought they did. But there was other agendas in play. Who knows? But ultimately, we were not guided through the best route into what we should have probably done. Um, but that was just the way things used to be back then a lot of the time. And it, it was potluck who you came across in terms of um in in terms of the in terms of the uh the experience that you had. From from my conversations with uh, many musicians recently, it still is potluck, unfortunately. Uh, and to your, your exact point there, the folly of youth means that you, even with the internet, you you do trust. You tend to trust people that are older than you. They've got more life experience, yeah. and when they talk with authority, yeah. you go, "Oh, what you're saying must be the fact of the matter." Okay, we'll go along with that. Absolutely. I mean, it's like look, rock the kind of the music industry and and outside of the music industry back in those times was a mur- was a murky place. Um, I'd like to think it's less murky now. Overall, you're still going to get people involved that have their own agendas, of course. But it's one of the things that I've really enjoyed working professionally as I do in the industry is, you know, working with younger bands or any or any musicians um, and having that position of trust and knowing that I can kind of, that I'm doing a good thing with it. Mm. Something else. Can you confirm you're the bloke that is from your imagination, the band name, Cradle of Filth? It's it's your baby, so to speak. Well, it's it's an interesting one. Um, it was it actually came from a jacket. Um basically there was there was it was and I'm not sure what Danny's recollection on this was, but we there was a there was a punk that was around in in um Ipswich and 
my memory of it is that he had Nikon's of the filth jacket and it came from that. And it was actually Danny, um, in all fairness, that um, uh, I think probably landed on the name, but mm. collectively we were discussing it. Um, in the same way, the, the infamous Jesus T-shirt, you know, we're all kind of collectively discussing that. That was actually on the the, um, the lawn of um, Niall's house that we were all sitting down one sunny summer's day trying to think about, uh, trying to think of the most offensive thing that we could <laughs> to put on a T-shirt because we'd had um, Fuck Your God and seen the reaction from that um, at shows. And we were like, how can we get the most offensive thing that we're doing? Um and it's actually, you know, will we come? Will we all come from? Uh, Mission accomplished, by the way. The world. <laughs> it, it's, well, where I, where I come from, in Essex, it, it's actually quite an Essex. It's, got, it's actually ironically quite an Essex thing in terms of like the way it's like. Oh, oh. Jesus is a. It's like you know, it's, it's a very kind. It's very regional from where we come from in terms of right. the way that's that is um, culturally. But we were generally just trying to think of the most offensive thing that we could think of. Um, seemed to do the trick. Definitely. And did you, I've spoken, I only spoke to Nigel Wingrove recently, another fantastic fella. Did you have yeah. a lot to do with, I know he, he came up with the, the art and a lot of the visuals, he and Chris Bell independently, but selecting those images. Okay. That was one of the questions that I couldn't quite, it wasn't, it wasn't clear because we're talking about almost, well, actually it is 30 years ago now. But was it yeah. you? Was it you or was it Danny that was saying, we want this image and we want this image and we're going to... No, I mean, there. look, I mean, again, I think, you know, credit where credit's due with Dan. He had a kind of vision in terms of the artistic side of it, um, which we're all very supportive of. And yes, we all discussed it, but it's a bit like, you know, you see the you see the image for principle. It's like, what do, what do we think of this? It's like, well, it's amazing. We want to use it, you know. Um, but, you know, Danny's always had a very clear vision in terms of the actual image of what's um, been happening with the band. And, you know, in the early days, in terms of the demo times of it, it was like, essentially, I led all the music and Danny led all the kind of the other side of stuff, you know, when it comes to the lyrics and the, um, when it comes to the lyrics and the uh, everything else. The imagery, and that yeah. was the way we, we tended to kind of work it. I think it was a kind of early incarnation, really, of what I ended up doing post the band is because between Danny and myself, we used to initially deal with a lot of the business side of it. Although it wasn't really business, but in terms of the, the actual physical working of it, um, yeah, if you see some of those old flyers, um, it's still got Danny, it's got Danny's old address on it. And you know, making checks payable to my name, you know, as a teenager, like one pound fifty for a demo, you know. Um fortunately I was too young to be paying any tax at the time. But uh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So so you just from a comment that you made there, those early demos, those subterranean yeah. demos invoking the unclean, you wrote the music. So we understand what's been firmly established throughout the chats is that Danny isn't a yeah. musician, so he doesn't write the music and he relies on the musicians. So that's why I'm, this is the part that I think people are really interested in. Invoking the unclean, effectively, they're all riffs that came from your bedroom. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, and But at the same point, Danny and I would sit down. It's like, Danny, again, I can't speak post uh, leaving the band, but although he can't physically write music in terms of, or, or didn't get stuck in and writing the music again, got a clear vision on it. It's like, you know, we'd be like kind of, Oh, this kind of riff and this kind of riff and yeah, that'd be cool with this kind of lyric. It was a kind of a fairly collective thing. Um, 
when it when it came down to to that side of it. Mm, okay, there's a big jump from invoking the unclean to orgiastic pledges foul. It's a bit like when Metallica went from kill them all to ride the lightning. So, did you did you intentionally start? Would, would, what's the what's the word uh, woodshedding? I think it might be the riffs with the band. Is that when it started going from the bedroom into the rehearsal studio? Yeah, well, I think it was just again natural evolution. I mean, I think we did in invoking the unclean must have been fifteen or sixteen, you know, and then orgiastic pleasures foul was the same kind of period. So, you know, you're uh, even even as a player, um, you know, at that particular time. You know, the only kind of black metal that, that we were listening to was, you know, unbeknownst to us really was Bathory and Celtic Frost because that was the only that and it wasn't even termed as black metal then, by the way. Yeah. You know, it was like avant-garde thrash. You know, it was a very very interesting back in the time because the, the term black metal didn't even come around from from Venom. I know I might have hordes of people say to me, Oh, what are you talking about? But yes, they did the album Black Metal, but from my understanding of it back at the time. No one was turning around to me and going, "Oh yeah, it was all oh, yeah, venom, black metal, venom." Black metal. It wasn't like that. It was like they were obscure thrash in the terms, in the same way that Celtic Frost and Battery were like obscure thrash. You know, the kind of the general kind of black metal term for me only started to come with the second wave of, of black metal bands. They're the ones that really embraced it and kind of ran with it. Um, so, in terms of um, the, the point that we we're talking about, in terms of the playing. Biggest influence on on me at the time was probably Deicide um, and a lot of lot of that stuff. The, Hoff, the Hoffman brothers, in particular, you know um, that style of guitar playing. The, the Amon demos I had because we used to tape trade, um, but that first Deicide album completely blew my mind. You know that was like in terms of the guitar playing. Um, we used to actually you know sit around and, and get drunk and then. I think Danny on one of his stereos had like a, a a microphone and we used to play that first Deerside album and when we were drunk kind of take turns in kind of like screaming along to the music <laughs> and just, you know, like you do when you're teenagers, air guitar playing and head banging when I used to have hair. And um, we were massively influenced by that. But me personally, that first Deerside album with the guitar playing, and that's fantastic, you know. Um, and obviously yeah, you're right, the stuff as well. Yeah. It really is. And, it, and it's, it stood the test of time, actually. The, the first, those first two Deicide albums, Deicide and, and Legion, they're masterpieces. And the playing on it is absolutely phenomenal. Le- Legion still sounds ahead of its time. I, I remember, I remember buying, getting Legion when it came out because it was a. I'd, I'd read about it in Hot Metal. We had a magazine here called Hot Metal, and how evil this this album was. So, of course, being a young fella in a boarding house who was a bit of an outsider, and yeah. uh, right in the middle. And listening to the radio program Three Hours of Power at night too, I thought I'll go out and get this one and Pure Holocaust by Immortal as well. This is a few years yeah. before I heard you guys. Yeah, I, I couldn't yeah. believe what I I could still I still transported back to the first time I heard them. It sounded like music being played backwards. That's the only yeah, way I could well, describe it. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the Pure Holocaust is almost like a almost like a, a grindcore black metal record. It's like yeah. you know, it's so it's so frenetic. Um, I absolutely love the drumming on that record, um, the drumming in with the guitar playing on that, it's just like there's a there's a real synergy with it. In fact, that particular record, um, Diabolical Form of Mysticism for me, I the first album I absolutely loved. I think that encaptured a lot of that real spirit that was around at the time, that real allure. Um, but particularly with Paul, 
pure holocaust i can remember playing the tape of that in my car and just being like holy fuck this is off the hook and i know immortal have ended up becoming a bit of a kind of cliche or a bit of a kind of almost a kind of parody of themselves which i think is a bit of a shame because the the earlier stuff in particular was fucking fantastic you know in terms of the true spirit of it um and you know i distinctly remember when it came to um diabolical full moon mysticism and pure holocaust just being mm. they were big they, again they were influences you know they were really evil sounding you know dark and mysterious records at the time um there was no memes of uh abath or anything <laughs> like that kicking around at the time you know and i think it was a little bit less tongue-in-cheek back then they, yeah, were, well, you know, they were definitely caught up in the spirit of it he he got there's a very early video of Abbott and some of the more prominent people from that Norwegian black metal scene when they were at school. And Abbott is whatever his real name is, I can't pronounce it anyway. Sorry, sorry, yeah. my Norwegian listeners. But uh he's on stage and he's doing this hamming it up thing. That guy was born to be on stage. He Absolutely. just ch- chose the black metal thing, and it was really sad to hear what happened to him in Argentina, all self-inflicted on his part, by the way. But he let that lifestyle get in the way, and, and I'm an old Immortal fan, as you are, and just hope he's yeah. through it. And I've had a good conversation yeah. with Demonaz uh, about that situation. It sounds like their personal situation is, is resolved in that they're mates again, and they have been for a few cool. years. But he's, yeah, he just needed to give up. He's just one of those blokes who needed to give up the drink, plain and simple. Yeah, and I think, you know, people have their demons, don't they? You know, and, and certain things affects people in different ways. But no, those, those again, it's those first couple of records with um, mm. with Immortal for me, are, they're still, I still regularly play them. They're, st- they're still definitely on my turntable in terms of uh, stuff that I listen to. Mm. Hey, Total Fucking Darkness, it sounds like an extension of or- orgiastic, I'll pronounce it right this time, orgiastic pleasures fell. But there was much better production, and you you did that, and you also picked all the band, you or the band actually picked some bigger studios. Now, I was going to frame the question around, by now it sounds like you were the head of the band, but it doesn't sound like that's the case. It sounds like you're really keen well, to point out that it's a collective effort. Yeah, well, I'd say certainly when it comes to, um, by this point, you know, Paul had joined and it was getting a bit more of a collective in terms of the way things were going. But it was, I would say, predominantly still working on the same lines of Danny and I kind of like kind of steering it of where it was really going. Um, ironically, with, with Total Fucking Darkness, it was actually recorded in the same studio that, um, or the same setup that both the other demos were. But we just, but by this point, rather than a four-track recorder, I think he'd gone to an eight-track, or rather than an eight-track, he'd gone to a 24-track. Whichever way it was, he had a he had a little bit of better equipment, but it was still essentially recorded on a um, a tape-to-tape, well, not even a tape-to-tape, but like a, a kind of porter studio mm. in a caravan with some mics in a field. <laughs> so the production quality, wow. uh, quality of it was extremely basic. Um and I think, but again, just in, in captured a certain thing by that point. I think my brother's influence was a bit more in there in terms of the keyboards by that point. Um, and I think we were, we were just, it was the kind of prequel to what we did with principle, but also, you know, a big part of that, uh, like kind of history is that post-orgiastic pleasures foul, we'd signed some shitty deal, 
um, independently with Tombstone Records, mm-hmm. and they put us in the studio. We recorded the whole record. They then didn't pay for it, um, and you know any of the kind of um, diehard fans or people that know the history of it will, will know this by now. But there was actually a whole record recorded before Principle, um, but because at the time reel to reel tapes were so expensive. Um, the studio was like, well, if they're not going to get paid for, we're going to wipe them. Um, this and is Goetia we were, or Go- Goetia. Or, or Goetia, yeah, or yeah, yeah. Goetia, and yeah. Um, we really obviously wanted to get the tapes, but none of us had any money. And our parents at the time were supportive, but a thousand pounds back then for these yeah. tapes was, I don't know, but it was, it was, it was a lot of money. And we essentially didn't have it and they wiped it. The only tape, the only singular recording that we had from it was a tape that we got and when Danny and I curated the the Total Fucking Darkness um, vinyl release we um, Niall had the original tape of that that Danny had lent him and so we were we were fortunate to be able to put that on that release and it's the only existing track from that but you know in hindsight it would have been great because that first record was a real mixture by that point of kind of death metal and some of the not black metal influences, but the kind of more symphonic keyboard influences that had come in with my brother. Um, but essentially from that record not happening, we were at a juncture point of, do we keep doing it? And then all of the second wave of black metal stuff hit. And then we were just completely taken away with that wave of music. Mm. And then TFD came along basically. Yeah. obviously you've got Black Goddess Rises on there which was on um, principle mm. so that was the kind of the window into what we, was to come from from that record so essentially all of the riffs everything else aside all of the riffs from your imagination from Invoking the Unclean through to Audiastic yeah. Pledges Foul Total Fucking Darkness and the majority of the principle of Evil Made Flesh well I'd say from my own personal perspective it was like the first the first two demos was was predominantly Dan and I. Total Fucking Darkness was a bit more Paul Lander and, and Ben and Rob obviously had a bit of influence on that as well. And then when it came into principle, there was a kind of throw over from that um, and it probably kept in the same kind of vein. I would say that, you know, it was when Dust came along that I'd say Paul's influence was probably a little bit more and Rob's mm-hmm. influence was a little bit more and then Nick's influence was in there as well and we were kind of much more of a collective. Principle stuff before it predominantly Danny and I um but TFD in principle there was more influence from Paul and Rob and and my brother in terms of that side of it mm. okay gotcha cool the fans so out the there, we, we just, actual, it was yeah. the natural evolution of it and by the way that wasn't anyone being precious it was just naturally how that kind of evolved at the time um mm. you know and that that all felt fairly natural in the way that progressed no, that's cool. I just, I, I might seem like I'm laboring some of the questions, but I just want to no, get to the bottom of some of this stuff here because I think it, it is important because the bands of the band's yeah. overall impact and and your impact, Paul. I mean, you've you've been this hidden master for decades now. People are aware of your existence through liner notes on a CD, but uh, this may be the first long form conversation where some of these things are being. Exp- I think it is the only time that we we've had an opportunity really as the fans to really understand your take and your perspective on a very very important period of time for the band not just the band but for black metal and extreme metal okay what's well, kind of you to say and, and look i appreciate that i have been asked you know many times over the years to kind of comment on stuff and i 
99.9% of the time, time refrain from doing so, mainly because, you know, I don't have an issue with it, but I think there's a lot of misinformation out there mm. and it's not something that I really want to kind of like get involved with too much. But, you know, our, basically our respect to what you're doing with the podcast. Um, Thank you. You know, I've had my on that for a little while and I think you're doing a fantastic job with it. And seeing the progression of it, it's just, again, Going back to what we were originally talking about in the beginning, I have a, a slightly uh, kind of um, um, philosophical kind of viewpoint on these things. Um, things I think organically have to feel right for me. And at, that, at this particular point, you know, when we started speaking, I was like, you know, it, feel, it feels timing-wise with everything that's going on, it, it feels probably right to have this conversation. Um, and I'm, you know, happy to, delighted to have it with you. Um but yes, it's not. This is the first time that I've ever really spoken to anyone about anything in that period, uh, in depth, with any kind of insight. Because a, you know, it you care about it, and I think you've got some listeners that do care about it. So I'm always happy to kind of talk about that. And um, yeah, it just kind of feels right. It's, the, it's it's in the right environment and and in the right context as well. Because I think when I've been asked to talk about stuff in the past, I've got you know got the read on it that it's fairly sensationalist it's like i'm not trying to kind of stir up any shit with anyone i just you know i'm happy to talk about stuff genuinely um but i've got no interest in stirring up shit in the past you know i'm still friends with all the people um that were in the band and i have nothing against them i still see and speak with danny you know um i still see nick around at festivals and different stuff so you know and obviously i see my brother all the time but he's my brother so <laughs> it's it has to be done in the right way um taken in the right context you know mm. uh, because i think that it's very easy when it comes to talking about the past in any band for it to be taken out of context and for for it to be taken in the wrong way yeah i had a real bee in my bonnet just lately of being one of those things you know you get these things sort of build some momentum but i've been really annoyed at the metal mastheads metal hammer decibel this sort of thing i grew up with terrorizer and metal maniacs which to me are still the most yeah. outstanding metal publications that ever existed yeah yeah the ones that the ones that are around right now okay it doesn't have to be a genius to work out that they're they're motivated by hits and clicks advertising revenue so the more salacious the more um scandalous if you like the blabbermouthing if you like of these mastheads i think has been yeah. disgusting but that that you and stuart and your brother and paula lender and yeah correct me if i'm wrong that these people haven't tried to reach out to you for some long form 17 page deep dive into this aspect of one of the most important bands in extreme metal history i found was as i feel as disgusting but it does open up this avenue for me Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, look. To to be honest, I would rather be having the conversation with someone like yourself, who's genuinely into it. Um, and for you know the listeners that you have that are also genuinely into it and interested, um, than doing it from for any kind of publicity side of it. Um, the 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 more kind of niche and geeky something is, the 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 more I kind of like it anyway. If I'm perfectly <laughs> honest, when it comes to this kind of stuff, it's more fi it's more fitting with the period of time. I, I've know. been I've had people who have been on the periphery. On I don't don't post to the bloody cradle of filth Facebook forums because they seem to be populated by a lot of juniors, a lot of goths, and this sort of thing. And that's definitely not what I am clearly. And uh, they've accused me of being obsessed with the era. I, I just I remember. My, Cradle of Filth was the last band I truly adored. 
Okay, right. and that ended that ended around about nineteen ninety eight or nineteen ninety nine, whenever the Cradle from Enslaved EP came out. After that, I, I was plus I was also about twenty by then too, so I was a bit old to yeah. be obsessing over bloody new bands. Half of them were younger yeah. than me anyway, even by that point. But it's it's just a, such a fascinating period, and I love what you said early on about there being this special blend of magic. I'm going to call it alchemy around what yeah. you guys are doing because I felt it. I. I listened to the principal. I got Dusk first and then went back and got principal, but I don't think they left yeah. my, my car CD player for like 18 months. There was a few other things that made their way into there, but that was the bedrock of yeah. my listening experience. And it gave me such energy and vigor and enthusiasm when I was going to work at like 4.30 in the morning, bloody mm. freezing Sydney mornings. I was living at the time and you put this stuff on and you wind the window down and you've got this stuff blasting and you're thinking, how good is life? When you've got this music, so I feel like cool. as though I was connected to that that great stream of that cosmic mm. that cosmic force that you guys were connected to that you talk about. Well, it's definitely a, a cosmic force. I, I completely agree. I think that, like, look, I think from a magical perspective, if you, if you can bottle up what people have in their teenage years in terms of that raw energy, that's just pure elixir in terms of the the, the power that really has if it's honed in the right way. Um, but I think it, it's it's an element that. Um, Again, people don't touch, don't really touch upon. You've got the the kind of general kind of what's in front of your face, the physical record and the physical music. But if you look deeper into the kind of um, the lyrical side of it, and if you look deeper into what was going on at the time, I mean, look, you only have to look at the lyrics and have a look at the influence around something like Principle to see the magical element in it anyway. Uh, and that's something that Niall also had a deep kind of influence in because he was also deeply and has always deeply been into that side of things. Um, I mean, Angela was on the record as well, doing a bit of spoken um, word, who sadly passed away. I mean, yeah, I, I was going to ask you about her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, again, I mean, it was, you know, the, the whole recording of Principal up at um, Academy was a real... <laughs> A really, really interesting experience, a really fun experience. But there was a lot of stuff that went on around that that was, you know, kind of truly magical. And um, yeah, I mean, like Angela herself was, uh, you know, Andrea herself, sorry, not Angela, Andrea herself um, was uh, a very magical person. Um, so yeah, there was just a, there was a lot of that influence and a lot of a lot of that element in there. Uh, and like I say, I can't speak about post when we kind of left, but certainly those records at the time, that was a big influence within it. And going back to your point, that whole period in time of music, there was a, there was, it is a fascinating period in time. It, it captured a moment of a lot of aspects that were going on, um, which I think in extreme music terms has never really been kind of done since. And, I, and I'm not saying that because I think, oh, you know, no one's bettered what we did. It's not about that. It's just the the, the period of time. It comes from that evolution of it not existing, um, which in itself is magic because it hasn't, you know, it's been created. It's like the the ever the organic evolution of it has true power. And you know, ultimately, post that point, when it comes to extreme music, it's always going to have an element of being generic. Um, and I'm not saying people can't make, write original music, but when it comes to the DNA of a certain genre or a certain style, that can never be recreated again in the same fashion. 
Um, you know, I'm I'm obsessed with early Napalm Death. I love all the early Napalm Death records. And the same thing, I would say that those the the four of you know Shan Embry and you know Lee and Mickey and and um, Bill together and what mm-hmm. they did carried the same vibe. It was like there was a moment of absolute pure magic with what they were doing. Um, enslavement. You know, scum, I think, was obviously collated in lots of different kind of periods uh, of a different period, you know, different people involved. But, you know, uh, enslavement, enslavement is like another principle or principle and enslavement share one common thread in terms of you had people at a certain age of a certain time just doing what they did. And that kind of purity really coming out in the music. And you can hear it. You can hear it. You can absolutely hear it. Absolutely. Enslavement albums got it in droves. Mm. Um, and it's a real piece of, you know, magic, I think, you know, less physical, magical, uh, magical, um, influences within it in terms of the context, but in terms of that pure music form and in terms of what was coming out that got recorded, that's it there again, right there. And you can say that with, you know, we were talking about the first Deerside album. You could talk about that with the Sombolane, the Dissection album. You could talk about that with, you know, a, Pure Holocaust, Nightside Eclipse, you know, um, you can talk about that with the, with the early Burzum records. Now, you know, I'm not condoning uh, anyone's politics here at all, but in terms of pure magic and pure essence of the music form, those early Burzum records carry the same thing, you know. Um, no, I agree. Yeah, it's a shame. Yeah. It's a shame that he's... Uh, He's a fairly, I'm just going to describe him as a unique individual because God knows there's no point in providing any commentary around the bloke. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a shame that anyone has to bring politics into this thing because it, it kind of, again, sullies it completely. I think it's, you know, regardless of your political viewpoint, you know, that, in my opinion, should never be brought into um, this kind of music form, you know, um, and the negative influence that it kind of has within that. And it is a shame because those early records in their kind of their musical form, they touched upon something. They are pure, they are pure magic in the same, in, in, very in the special same albums. Yeah. Very special albums. Um, now, you know, you can't say that in some circles to some people, cause they're going to accuse you of being some kind of, you know, you're a Nazi, you're a well, fascist. Yeah, I don't, you know, I'm not commenting on anyone's political viewpoint, we're talking about the the essence of magic within music, and that that's I'm bringing that up in that context and that context only, yeah. in terms of the the thread that you can see when people of a, of a certain age of a certain period in time, as in those times, you could hear though you could just hear it all coming out. You could hear that kind of almost pure magic coming out in in the way people were recording music and the way it was being done. I mean, Python again who was recording a lot of those records you know he's a kind of a genius you know someone that understood that music one of the hardest things that we always found um was finding people to record music and actually getting it sound how we wanted Mm. you know and again i don't have to tell you this because you play and i think it's a little bit different these days because it's actually really hard to get a certain aesthetic these days um you know, I know from doing the Gatemaster stuff, I've had to really try and get a certain aesthetic in terms of making it sound as as shitty as it needs to be, to be frank, because going through all the digital technology, um, you know, one of the things that I do in terms of vocals is I, I record 
on my on the um the dictaphone uh voice notes on my iPhone because I find that actually that you know if you record across it so you don't get the pop and you you email the files to yourself so you can put that into logic it's already coming in it even doing that it doesn't mm. even sound that shitty to be honest but it gets you a certain tone that allows me to kind of play around on the vocals in terms of getting the the, the tonality that I need from it but back then trying to get guitar tones or drum tones to sound a certain the way you wanted them to sound was really difficult and the most difficult thing was trying to get stuff to actually be to physically sit with each other and be heard forget the tone of it if you're playing extreme music back then trying to get it so it's not literally inaudible mush in terms of not hearing anything was extremely difficult so someone like a python that really understood the dna of what that music was and that could not only record it in the way the the uh, musicians wanted but actually physically get the recording sounding so you could hear everything amazing you know and i love all of his work would you have agreed with the band's direction then that said talking about python i just spoke to mike exeter this week too another fantastic right. fella yeah absolutely and his his philosophy alongside of kit uh kit wolven of course was a producer on the album and mike yeah. mixed it but they're really a team okay so they work together to, of course you know gosh yeah. and at least my listeners know too so i won't go into this side of it but did you agree with that philosophy to make to 48 tracks this sort of thing insofar as making the band sound as vast and as symphonic and as bombastic as it could because the original sin version of dusk compared to the music for nation versions of dusk i mean they're so different that even though they're the same songs they don't sound yeah. like the same songs if you know what i'm saying no well look i mean all i say is this i think the the original sin was how we intended it to be um dusk how it came out was how it evolved into with you know things being certain things being redone and and, and other um musicians recording things that we had that we had done previously um so you know in hindsight there's a kind of natural evolution with that there and they kept the magic uh, all i can say is they kept the the what they did do outside of the physical aesthetic is that they did keep the magic within what was recorded um, and that's why I never really had that much of uh, um, an issue with it. If they'd have completely sanitized it, I would be going, they sanitized something that they needed that they didn't need to do, but they didn't sanitize it. You know, it was a different take on it, but they didn't sanitize what the actual essence of it was. Mm -hmm. So I can only kind of respect that with those people and the way that they kind of did it. And I mean, look, Stuart was a, a phenomenal guitar player and, um, you know, they did without patronizing any of them they did it justice i think yeah well said well said yeah what, what are your thoughts and what are your recollections of the 1993 uk tour with emperor because i feel like when nirvana played australia back in 1991 when they broke large worldwide it seems yeah. like every third person you meet was at one of the gigs but it's bullshit because most of the venues were at a capacity of two or three thousand people yeah, especially yeah, yeah. the local one here i feel like that's happening a little bit with the 1993 tour with you guys and emperor people are saying oh, i was at the gig or i knew somebody was at the gig when in reality i understand there were some venues where there were three or four people there yeah i mean look london was busy um edinburgh i remember was like probably about 50 people you know it was crazy i remember standing up on the balcony of the venue that we played watching emperor and just looking at the floor looking so empty and being like wow okay well no one really cares about this in scotland <laughs> but um and then we had 
re- then we had a really interesting experience at the um uh with the with the uh the the Bradford show uh yeah the lead show no it was the Bradford it was the, the one in 12 club basically we were meant to be at Queen's Hall in Bradford and there was a guy called Rich Militia um for he used to play in a band called Sore Throat um who was actually <laughs> the um promoter of the uh show in Bradford Queen's Hall wasn't available whatever happened to it and then all of a sudden it's like we're in the one in 12 club in Bradford now the one in 12 club in Bradford was I don't know if it's still there but it certainly used to be this kind of super left wing right on vegan crusty venue punk venue and bearing in mind we're going in there with Emperor who you know it was early 90s all the Kerrang stuff had hit by this point and it was like church burning Satanists essentially um we kind of played the gig and it was brilliant. I mean, it's a fairly small venue. I think it held about 150 people and that was busy and it was a fantastic show. But I always remember being upstairs in the one and 12 club and we're eating kind of vegan food. And by the way, I've been veggie for years and it, this isn't, this isn't a, a diss at any of that. Um, but basically I remember being upstairs and seeing, you know, Samoth and that sitting there, you know, in that environment <laughs> And I'm being quite amused by it because we'd actually, weird enough, Danny and I used to go to a bunch of the um, the uh, the kind of Hunt Saboteur gigs. It's like what got us into extreme music, listening to John Peel on the radio mm. and going, we had a um, a place near us called the ICA, which is the Ipswich Caribbean Association, and they used to put on Hunt Saboteur gigs. And the Hunt Saboteur Association was against predominantly against fox hunting and blood sport in the uk and they used to put these shows on there and yeah danny was veggie at the time and and i was as well and we were we were definitely pro uh um you know kind of you know non uh animal hunting and and kind of pro hunt sabbing and i used to do a bit hunt sabbing in my teenage years with uh a friend of mine's brother who who was a hunt sab so we used to go out on the hunts and distract the kind of dogs and the, and the riders and, and that in itself uh, was an interesting experience with the huntsman and, and all of that side of it. But anyway, digressing from this, um, we actually got into a lot of the extreme music through that because the first shows that we went to were like extreme noise terror. And we saw like in Napalm Death and all, all the kind of like, you know, dogs and the Crippins, all this stuff that was going around in the kind of, the kind of crust punk and kind of grind scene at the time. So I was aware of the one in 12 club and it was ironically a kind of area that we kind of almost come from in a weird way. Um, anyway, all of a sudden we're like rich militias going, Oh, we got, you got to go. You got to go. So what do you mean we got to go? So we got, there's a load of, there's a load of people coming down that have heard there's some church burning Satanists and that essentially if you, if you don't go, you're going to get lynched. And we're like, what? And they're like, what were we talking about? They're like, they are out for blood. They're like, you've got to go. You've got, you've literally got to go now. I was like, we thought they were joking. I was like, oh, fuck. And there was a little panicked kind of like, shit, we've got to get out of here. Kind of like everyone just went. Oh, wow. Okay. That was pretty extreme. We weren't expecting that. Um, but at the same time, it was all like, almost a little bit like, well, that was a bit of a strange experience because the way that all kind of went down. So that was one of the shows on the Emperor Tour, um, which was quite amusing. <laughs> What was their issue that I, I, I would have thought these lefty types would have been cock a hoop that you were burning churches and no, well, at, at the time there was a lot of at the time bearing in mind there's no internet there's a lot of hysteria around you had the national um, newspapers in in Norway reporting in the way they were 
you had Kerrang sensationalizing it all with their whole kind of church burning Satanists, kind of these Norwegian kind of um kind of like, you know, demons, you know, coming over here and doing whatever, which to be honest, we found hugely exciting as teenagers and, and in that scene. We, we always and loving the music, we thought it was cool as hell. But the um but you know, so there was a lot of hysteria around it. Um, and to give you to give you an idea of what we're talking about, which I'm sure wouldn't happen now, we had a photo shoot with, I believe, Metal Hammer, which there's a place li- um, near us here that had a, the ruins of an old abbey, and um, basically we were we were doing a picture shoot up there, and this old abbey had been rumoured to have been used by Satanists in the 70s and had a little bit of that kind of history to it. So we thought it was perfect Mm. for doing this picture shoot. Well, we all drove up there, you know, in our corpse paint after getting ready at home. It's about 15 miles away from where I live now. It's only local. And I swear to you this happened. We we are, they've set up for this picture shoot and it's, it's off this kind of little path outside of this village. And someone says, who are all those people over there? And we're like, it's a bit weird. What's going on there? And then, then, then someone said, oh, well, we're going to have to go. What? It's like, look at that field over there. Coming over the field were people with dogs and sticks and pickaxe handles. And I mean, it was something out of a film. A we like, horror film, what? yeah. We're like, what the fuck is going on here? But basically, it's the same shit they had heard that it was like some black metal Satanist taking pictures up at this ruin. And essentially the, 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 the local people and villagers were out <laughs> to kind of essentially, you know, do whatever. And we were just like, is this for real or what? But that's, that was the vibe back then. You've got to understand it's like back then it was like, Oh, okay. Well, church burning Satanists in our local community, we, you know, a, they must must exist, which is pretty absurd. But two, oh, okay, what's 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 the best way to deal with that? Okay, well, we're going to arm ourselves and go and beat them into a pulp. I mean, it's completely mental, really, when you think about it. But that actually, but that actually happened. Um, so, so that was just how things were at the time, which is you know, which is probably why a lot of the Norwegian side of it got the publicity that it did in the first place. I'd say internationally, obviously what they were doing was was very extreme, but why what I mean is the actual general kind of um euphoria around it is because it's almost like, oh God, oh there's the church burning Satanists, oh our children aren't safe. It's like in context, it's a bunch of teenagers getting very influenced by certain things and taking things to an extreme, which only teenagers would probably do. And in hindsight, I think as adults now, if you ask any of them about it, they'd probably give you a pretty interesting viewpoint on it. But, you know, it certainly wasn't a bunch of, you know, church-burning kind of like demons out to kind of terrorise the the actual greater community, which is which I think the kind of um, the, the general euphoria came yeah, from. Yeah, hysteria. There's hysteria. But what, yeah, what an amazing story. Oh, oh. I wonder why the story hasn't come to light before because, I mean, that's the publicity that you gain, particularly being a British band and having these villagers scared stiff that their children were going to be uh, effectively you guys are vampires or satanic demons or what have yeah, you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just one of those things that I remember that, that you know, has never really come well, certainly never heard it come out, but it was almost like that was just really weird. And by the way, it happened really quickly. It wasn't something that was like a prolonged 
um, scenario. Mm. It was like we literally went up there, got set up, and it's like, oh shit, that's it. But I can remember driving away out of there, fairly near to them, and we're like, what the hell is going? What the hell is going on? You know, yeah. now memories does it does embellish things to the point it might have been 10 or 15 people rather than you know the hordes of people people that have listened to this might think it was but even so it was like i don't think they were coming up to us you know to have a quiet word they were armed <laughs> so, you know i wonder going you know, back and if you could ask them at the time okay so when you meet these young men meaning you guys yeah. what do you think yeah. you're going to do well, you're not going to... I don't know. Well, I think it's that, it's that whole kind of almost witchfinder general vibe, isn't it? I don't know. Yeah. It's like... That's what, what I'm what thinking, they have a horror thing. Yeah, it's so yeah, well, it's, it's completely bizarre. I mean, personally speaking, if I had any issues as, as people in their situation, I'd probably just call the police. <laughs> it's like, you know... Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, real, real concern. I, 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 I think the last thing on my mind was like, oh, I'm going to arm myself with a pickaxe handle and a dog and go up there and sort this out. It's completely, uh, completely mental, but there you go. It's very interesting, the context of this conversation I have with, I've got daughters uh, eight and ten years of age, and I talk to some of their uh, parents, and most people just know me as a normal bloke, and then when I, they go a bit deeper after a few drinks, say, yeah, I interview all these bands, and they're like, oh, you interview all these devil bands and stuff, so oh, hang on a sec, you know, these are regular people, it's just a, just a creative artifact goes in this direction, and then I said, okay, so let, cool. me, let me put a scenario to you, I say to them. Cardi B has a song out called Wet Ass Pussy at the moment, which is using primary colours in the video, which is solely aimed at girls, not even teenagers, yeah. girls, yeah. okay? What's yeah. worse? I mean, I grew up listening to satanic music and I loved it and it gave me a lot of uh, – it was inspiring. I'm, I'm, I'm Catholic, I'm Christian, still in my day-to-day, -day, yeah. but I listen to this music, it's very inspiring for me. But this Wet Ass Pussy thing, you want to talk about real Satanism and real fucking evil, okay? Sexualising young girls – Okay, through these fucking well, awful this, videos, it's what's well, this worse. Is, this is this is this is exactly. It. I think in terms of um, in terms of occult or religious influences, um, there's a certain historical element to it. Um, you know, one of the things that always fascinated me about you know heavy metal, um, black metal, death metal, you know, a lot of stuff in that vein, is the historical um, element to it. You know, and I would say that. You know, if you read up on any satanic philosophy or religious philosophy at all, you know, it's it's an educational thing. Um, people can take it literally, of course, but I think you have to have a certain mindset to really consume that and mm. understand it um, or even practice it. So I think, you know, that's far less of a dangerous influence than, than what you're talking about for sure. But, you know, I'm the same as you. You know, all religion uh, fascinates me. You know, I'm not, you know, even though my music history has been down a certain path, um, I'm open to all sorts of uh, influences. I mean, look, anything, I love folk horror. I love anything, obviously, to do with the occult. I love any, anything to do with religion, full stop. You know, Catholicism itself, um, you know, Judaism, anything. You know, there's especially when it comes to, you know, the Kabbalah or when it comes to anything that's mystical around any religion. Because, you know, all religions have a certain element of mysticism around them. Um, you know, and it's, it's a bigger conversation than music. But personally speaking, it's like, you know, the fact that, you know, man for a, let, for, for a want or a term um, has manipulated religion for their, for their purpose um, mm. of war and, and everything else over the, over the um, historical age. That's got nothing to do with the purity of religion.
You know, if you take the religion, if you take the purity religion in any form, it's a wonderful thing. And that can mm. be whatever path you're choosing to tread, you know, whatever branch, you know, and that can mean any faith or any religion. So, I mean, it's obviously a much bigger conversation, but I agree with you. I think there's a lot, a lot of um, anything to do with with, with anything religious uh, has a, has a context to it that is educational, mm. and um, I would in, endorse anyone to explore. Mm. Well, materialism is the house of Baal. It's not. It's absolutely, not Satanism. Absolutely. It's not Satanism and these wonderful things that have inspired you and I in the way that they have and given us so much, uh, given us so much to look forward to. I, I loved. I remember when I read uh, the Satanic Bible, the, the Levee thing. It, yeah. it just came across like a self-help book to me. Okay, they, I didn't well, even find it spiritual. A humanist. It's more of a humanist thing, really, isn't it? I mean, like you've got the ritual and you've got the, you know, the kind of theatrical element. I say theatrical element to it. There's obviously some, you know, real element to it. Um, but again. It's like I think you have to you have to take it with uh, with the kind of um, with the sentiment it's meant in um, ultimately. But I think that, you know this. The, I, I would say the, the the ritualistic element in anything. It's like you know you can walk into you know any kind of town or city and go into a church and you know and especially when it comes to Catholicism, which you know I, I do respect, but when it comes to the ritual and the dogma and you can go and sit and watch, you know, a service and go for all of that ritual and all of that dogma and all of that kind of like performance. And that's just, you know, that's normal. That was seen in the great, in the greater scheme of things as normal. Whereas if you were, if you were doing a satanic rite somewhere, you wouldn't particularly do that out in the open probably anyway. But if that was in a room somewhere where people were just walking into it, that wouldn't be, considered normal that would be mm. that would consider to be you know maybe a dangerous thing maybe a, an influence that that's not good but that's because you know ultimately the construct that we live in is is uh predominantly when well, the uk less so now but predominantly being a christian kind of society so you know you've got the historical element of of things um influencing things in a certain way I think we're we're a bit more of a cultural hot potch, the hot pot than we than we were even ten mm. or fifteen years ago. Mm. I, I just you, you with a surname like Ryan, you've got Irish heritage as well as I do. Yeah. And I just I just yeah. love the fact that so much of Catholic and Christian ritual it's based in this pan Celtic paganism. Okay, Ishtar Absolutely. being Easter, this this type of thing in the egg. And that's yeah. the way I choose to honor our heritage, funnily enough. Okay, because yeah. it's not that far back for me. And it's the way that by going to church or mass, I love the way it's called mass still. Okay, we we long yeah, yeah. since yeah. We, we we go to a Church of England church these days in the city in Brisbane City, but uh, these days, so we sort of left the Catholic faith behind in a lot of ways. But uh, mm. I still love the iconography associated with, and I grew up that way. Absolutely, feel, feeling knowing, didn't know for a fact, but. My intuition told me that there are far deeper links than what's being presented to us here, and that's the way how I choose to honour our shared heritage, our pan Celtic heritage, through Christianity. Yeah. Well, one of the um, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the lockdown as well was there was a kind of re certainly in the UK there was a re explosion of um, in the early nineties and well seventies eighties and into the nineties you had a lot of these kind of underground fanzines. You know, occult fanzines and and various different um, kind of folk horror fanzines of various different bits and bobs. They become a bit of a resurgence of that 
And um, one of them is called ritual and Decla- rituals and declarations. Um, that you know, there's there's various different ones. One weird walk is another one that came out, which is all about exploring um, the English countryside and historical monolithic sites. Mm. Um, but they also have a lot about they have folk horror stories and then all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, hellebore was another one, um, which is actually a plant that the the witches used to uh, use um in ritual but anyway by the by it's another little fanzine that's all to do with folk horror and you know a lot of it is to do with um english history um and english folklore but that was fantastic because there was just this explosion of people exploring that rich cultural heritage in terms of what you're saying in terms of pagan and you know earlier influence and the connections of that within um modern religion as well and making those connections as well and there's some there's some really great um titles i'll post this interview i'll send you a couple of links with stuff that's worth with these fans if you've got any interest in that there's a few Mm. bits and bobs that you should get hold of but again that's something else that i got into um in the lockdown um in terms of you know re-exploring some of that stuff or say re-exploring some of that stuff outside of classic text, having almost like a coffee book fanzine that you can kind of flick through mm. um, some of this stuff in, which is which is really cool. Mm. Hey, just going back to talk about some of the band members again. Yeah. Nick, Nick has, he, he, he said that uh, Robin has trouble tying up his shoelaces. Now, that clearly wasn't your experience with working yeah. with Robin. I mean, look, I, mean I'm not, I can't really comment on that. I mean, look, Robin's a great bass player. And um, again, he he brought he definitely brought a certain energy to the band, um, and you know he he wrote some great riffs as well. Um, he, Can he you understand did. why Nick would say that though? <laughs> I mean, right, right, we always just say that Rob lived on Planet Rob, and it's like you know, like yeah. Rob, Rob's kind of he's such he's such a lovely guy, um, and I've got all the time in the world for Rob, um, and he was just like. I think he was just happy in his own space. He was just happy kind of doing his thing. Rob actually came and spent, um, we had a couple of Christmases together around uh, um, my um, my parents' house, which was lovely. And uh, yeah, I always, I always still remember, Rob was always the one person in the band that was like, always a great laugh to hang around with, um, but was definitely kind of doing, doing his thing, you know? Yeah. Was Sarah part of the group when you were for... Well, when did Sarah get involved? Oh, on the peripheral, yeah. I mean, on the peripheral edge of it. I mean, she did start. She did some stuff. She did some of the the singing on on Dust and the Original Sin. So yeah, I mean, again, got to know Sarah for a while while we're in the band, and you know, I have good memories of of hanging out with her, and uh, you know, we had a bit of a laugh at the time. But you know, that was kind of towards the very tail end of of that period, that tenure, really. Yeah, I've been back and forward with her over email and messenger and for, for a couple of years now. And uh I don't know whether she'll ever want to be ready to have a conversation because sometimes some in some moments she's yes, we'll do it, and then it just never gets around to it. And then yeah. But yeah, it's well, trying to an, understand. Yeah, yeah. I'll say it'll be an interesting conversation. I mean, it's been interesting for me um listening to other people's conversations and their different takes on things and um, you know getting into some of the other stuff just out directly outside of it as well and, and seeing what makes people tick, you know? Yeah. Her role in the band is very hard. It's 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 mysterious, okay, because she wasn't on the T-shirts. I, I 
I went to a meet and greet and she wasn't there even though she was in the country touring with the band. Oh, okay. It was I, I would love to get to the bottom of why on earth she wasn't a tenured member when she was on all of the albums from was she on she was on principal, I think, wasn't she? For there's a no, she was no, on dust. She was on dusk. Not prin- yeah, not not dust. I mean, look, when we did dusk, she was basically in as a kind of session singer and did a couple of shows with us. I remember that. But that's as far as it kind of got that particular mm. point. Um, and then obviously she became more involved, I think, after we left. So mm. that's kind of how it was, really. You, you and Paul, are you still mates? Paul, Alinda, well, that is I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen Paul for for donkey's years. Um, and again, I used to, but when he was still in the band, I used to bump into him in festivals, uh, at festivals, and say hello to him. Yeah, I mean, look. We never fell out. Um, I certainly don't have any issue with him. Um, if I saw if I saw him again, I mean, like I can't remember the last time I actually saw him. I mean, he's in America, right? Um, so to the USA. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So chance of me bumping into him are probably fairly slim. But um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, but yeah, yeah, we're still yeah. no issues with him at all. Mm. To be honest, no, no issues, no, no issues with anyone um, in that town. And it sounds far too far too diplomatic, I know, but it's it, it's genuinely genuinely true. And I think it's one of the reasons why, when I've been asked in the past to to have conversations about stuff, is like, well, there's not really anything too sensationalist that I'm going to give anyone. If we mm. want to have a conversation like we've had in terms of having you know, factual conversations and talking about stuff at the time and that was happening at the time. That's a different thing. But in terms of the sensationalist side of it, of like, oh, I can't stand this person or I don't like this person, that's just not going to happen with me because genuinely I have no real issue with anyone. It sounds like you and your brother have been raised right not to hold on to resentment, though, because you're both giving me a very similar vibe around this. I'll say this. Things can get very emotional when you're in and out of a band when you're younger. But I think you have a very realistic grasp of uh, the past of what's kind of gone on as you get a bit older for a start. But I think you know, I, made it, I made reference to you um, earlier about that it became very clear to us when we went on to do the Blood Divine and went through not too dissimilar um, kind of experience mm. in terms of navigating the, the industry side of things that we're kind of a few things, I think, connected in. Um, but by that point, it was not really in a position where well, personally, I was not going to kind of kind of go knocking on the door to go back and things kind of moved on. And then with me personally, I ended up kind of essentially falling into the industry and that side of my kind of life took off. So that kind of just took me on a completely different trajectory. And ironically, I ended up then seeing people and bumping into people at gigs and festivals that I was involved with. But that was in a, an entirely different, um, entirely different uh, situation. Hmm. Was there ever a discussion about you coming in when Stuart left? So Paul came in, but John wasn't a writer, you see, and didn't actually play on. Yeah, no, I mean, we didn't really have um, we didn't really have any conversations at all um, about that. And uh, there's not really been any kind of conversations um, since that point, to be honest. Um, You know, look, there's certain anniversaries coming up. I think there's like the 30th anniversary of Principal coming up next year in 24, Mm. and you know, never say never. Yeah, fingers crossed on that point. It's very interesting to hear that you were an integral part of the reminting of Dusk, the original Sin version, whereas Danny went alone with Cruelty. This is back when Stuart was still alive and he didn't involve Stuart and he yeah. called Les Smith in that. 
Well, Danny and I, well, in the same way that I was saying about Paul, I hadn't seen Danny and I kept bumping into Danny at festivals. Um, and then I kind of reconnected with him properly and just, you know, look, Danny and I have a connection. We went to school with each other and, and known each other since we were like, you know, 14, 15 years old. And I think if you have been to school with somebody and I think shared the experiences that we did through those early teenage into late teenage years, there's a certain bond there that's not really going to kind of go away. Um, you know, it's just, we always reminisce when we talk about stuff because they were genuinely very enjoyable times. You know, um, most of the time, Danny and I text about the darts or the snooker these days or, or football because <laughs> that's essentially oh, yeah. what we're into. Um, there might be the odd thing that goes on there, but we would, we were only texting literally a couple of weeks ago about the darts when it was on TV. So mm. <laughs> that's as rock and roll as it gets. <laughs> you talked a little bit about the work you're doing now, but can you go into some detail on that? And so far as your day to day, yeah, I mean, look, I'd, you know, ultimately, I don't want to kind of go into it too much because it's 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 a we're talking about a very different time on on this conversation. But essentially, what happened when I left the band is I, you know, thought I was going to be taking a little bit of time off. You know, I did the blood divine stuff, and then after that, kind of fell apart. I was going to be taking a little bit of time out basically um, and ended up by default promoting some shows, which I ended up having an actual adaption for. And what transpired out of that is I ended up getting a, a job in my local music venue as a programmer um, and having a series of successful shows there. And then I ended up going up to London um, and getting a job with the Mean Fiddler working as a national promoter um, based out of the Astoria in London. And at that point, I was doing national tours. Um, and MySpace had come around at that particular point. And the short version of it is that I I kind of came across and recognised the signs of the kind of a scene of bands coming through, which I was fortunate enough to kind of grab a bunch of and promote a bunch of. Uh, and there were some bands like In Flames and various other acts that I knew anyway, which I'd kind of gone for and was promoting. And then I had the opportunity to become a, a booking agent with um, an agent called Neil Warnock, who is a veteran agent. And, you know, he was Johnny Cash's agent. Um, he was uh, He's like Dolly Parton's agent. He was Motorhead's agent. He Purple's agent. He's the, the, in... Uh, the guy's a legend, you know, and and he gave me an opportunity to to work with him as a booking agent, um, which was a massive opportunity, which I took, and my kind of career in that path kind of took off from that point there on in. Um, and you know, I went, you know, I signed a bunch of the bands that I that for booking that I essentially promoted, and you know that was twenty two years ago, and so that's the path that I've kind of gone down. And that's what I do. So, you know, I'm a booking agent and I book tours um, internationally um, for various acts. And um, that's basically what I do. And, mm. that's, and that's a big reason why, you know, I didn't kind of go back to do music is because the whirlwind and the pace of that, it's all consuming. And it's something that I, that I willingly threw myself into. Um, and I'd say that the, the kind of the lockdowns um, were a kind of an enforced break for most people from the world, but certainly me from my career, it was an enforced break, but then opened up a bunch of time for me to kind of re-explore, you know, what we we're talking about originally in terms of music and and getting 
a little bit more involved again with something creative because it had really been the first opportunity that I'd had in that time to really do it or want to do it because ultimately my focus was was uh, was purely on the career mm. yeah for sure yeah is there are there any other topics that you wanted to address from the band's early years is there any questions that i haven't asked that you like to not from my end I, I mean i welcome any more questions from your end why you've got me if you want to talk about anything else um you know, I appreciate time sticking on and you probably don't want a three hour interview, but if there's, <laughs> if, there's anything, if there's anything you're genuinely interested in, I'm always happy to kind of um, uh, help. I mean, there's another project that I have been doing recently with a, a good friend of mine called Mystical Forces. And mm. uh, that's something that we've, we've, um, we have, we've had like uh, death prayer records in the UK sucker tape out, which is great, which is basically sold out and um there's going to be a vinyl coming out of that as well so that's something else that i've been involved with um musically awesome. that one i do um vocals and keys on uh my friend count vornoch does all of the actual uh music but that's something that i've had a lot of fun with him on as well and i'd have to say that the collaboration with other people from the perspective of not being in brackets in a band is something else that i've really thoroughly enjoyed because you can do it at a pace and you can kind of do it a little bit more on your own terms with mm. other people. Um, you know, there's a lot to be said of one man and two man black metal projects. Yeah, there is. <laughs> Some of them are the best ones ever. Look at Burz and, and and what you're doing there, obviously. But j just on the topic of, are there any other topics or questions uh, that I'd, I'd like to discuss or questions I'd like to answer? It's just been great to to give you the mic and just to hear you speak and talk about things from your own perspective and raise things that you feel are important with occasional questions from me. I think that's the important thing there. And that's what's what prompts me to ask the question because you've given me so much and the listeners so much tremendous insight into the early years and I meant what I said your your role uh, in the evolution of black metal and extreme metal it's largely hidden and I understand there's reasons for that that, that but I think that you've it's about time you got your just you and you you are recognized as one of the forefathers if you like of the way that gen 2 black metal okay you might not have created it but you helped it evolve in a certain way and cradle of filth are a cornerstone band emperor satirican immortal cradle of filth mayhem there's there's a you know half a dozen bands or thereabouts and cradle of filth are right right in that mix and that's all spawned from the era of which you are an, a, the really the crucial member from a musical standpoint well thank you i really appreciate you saying that and um that's kind of you to say that i think look i hope that i've you know answered the questions honestly and given an honest account of um you know what went on at the time it's it's a period you know it's a period of time that i feel hugely proud to have been part of and i think from a musical perspective you know again very proud to have put that kind of blueprint down um never did i think when we were doing all of that the principal and you know the partly the demos, but Principal and Dusk would have so much influence. Um, but I'd say Principal in particular is a particularly special album because it's just very unique. Um, when I listen to that stuff now, it's very, I don't, I don't listen to it, you know, I'm not listening to it every day or anything, but when I go, when I revisit that, it's almost hard to imagine myself actually doing it. Um, I had a friend of mine who got one of the early demos the other day. So I said, oh, you know, and he's, he's a fan of that period and kind of, he, he sent me a file. He was like, oh, check this out. There's these extra couple of tracks on that I've not heard before. And I was listening to the playing on it and I was kind of going, you know, 
I kind of very proud of the playing that was on there, mm. you know. Um, I'm not saying I couldn't do it now if I got back on the guitar because I could, but there's a, there was a certain vitriol with it. I can just hear the the, the kind of the, I can just hear everything that was going on at the time, um, and it's hugely reminiscent when I do listen back to it. It does bring back a lot of memories, and I'd say the vast majority of them good. You know, it was a very it was I use the word again. It was a very magical time and period, and I feel very um, privileged to have been part of it. I think you should be really proud of the work you did too. You know that that's Thank the word you. that comes to mind because it is it's Thank they you. are they are things and I've said this to the other members that they this is music in the way that we listen to BB King records from the forties and fifties well maybe not BB King but you know those those early blues greats mm. this that era of black metal is going to be continued you watch throughout the rest of our lives it will be continuously influential you can't go yeah. to you can't go to an Asian country or a South American country and not see a cradle of filth or another black metal T-shirt. You go to the Philippines yeah. and you see them there, okay? And there's yeah, young yeah, people, yeah. Yeah. there's young people that are that are wearing this stuff here. So it's it's a global thing, and you've tapped into something like these cosmic winds, if you like, have spread all over the, this vast globe of ours. And young people, they're not even disaffected; they're creative types. You know, they're yeah, people yeah, that, yeah. that love to dive into the the hidden aspect of our world, if you like, and they always, yeah. as young people, we end up at black metal and extreme metal and it's just whether or not we stay there. But when you travel, no doubt you've seen it, no doubt you've done a bunch of travelling across Europe. And yeah, and I, I do, and it, it just always amazes me. I mean, you know, I travel a lot with work and I see exactly what you're talking about. You know, I'm, quite often I will be in a city somewhere where I've travelled for a show or travelled to go and see people for meetings or whatever, and I will be walking around and, um, you know, I see the t-shirts and I see principal t-shirts um, mm. quite a lot. And um, that that never ceases to um, amaze me and put a smile on my face, if I'm perfectly honest. Um, never, did, never did I think as young teenagers doing what we were doing um, that it would end up having the influence that it's had or that the kind of whole scene would have the influence that it does. Um, you know, I've always collected records and, you know, I've still got a lot of vinyl from back at that time. And I, I see some of the prices on that and I'm just like, shit, yeah. you know, I kind of know that it's got, but I agree with you. I think, I think it's, it has become timeless. I can, I can see why people have a certain fascination with the, with that period in time, because I still have that fascination myself, mm. not through what I did, but that particular um, period in time always holds a certain allure. And of course, for me, a certain amount of reminiscence with it. Um, so I can see why people are either still obsessed with it or become obsessed with it, because I think it's a very alluring period of time. Well, there he is, ladies and gentlemen, the great Paul Ryan. Wow. I so appreciate that he was willing to have the conversation there because it's probably answered a lot of questions and theories, put to rest some theories, or maybe confirmed some theories that some of you out there have been postulating through the comments on YouTube and on Facebook, and even you people that like to message me about the group. I appreciate that too, by the way, because I know everybody that talks to me about the band, they're real fans and they care about getting to the bottom of things and hearing the story as it needs to be told from the alumni, from the musicians themselves, and no better example there than that chat with Paul Ryan. Now, if you like that conversation, there are plenty more chats with the members of Cradle of Filth, ex-members, alumni, over at scarsandguitars.com. Click on the link titled Cradle of Filth Conversations, chats with Danny Filth, Stuart Anstis, Greg Moffat, Paul's brother, Ben. Ben Ryan, that's up there as well. Nigel Wingrove, 
Chris Bell, the two fellas responsible for the creative artifacts and the vision of the band back in those days, and a very good conversation recently with the mixer and producer of Dusk. Well, he's a mixer on Dusk and the co-producer on Cruelty and the Beast, Mike Exeter. If you like, oh, they're actually a lot more chats too. I don't just do Cradle of Filth. If you're new to what it is that I do, I highly doubt that. Most of the people are pretty invested so far, but chats with other members of extreme metal bands, Morbid Angel, Vader, Satyricon, Emperor, had a few chats with Ishan, so many more. Just search via Spotify for the full list because the website's only been going for a couple of years and I've been doing this for five years or so, but there are Plenty of chats that are available on the website. And if you like listening, maybe you like reading too. I bet you do, because I've written a book, Scars and Guitars, Volume 1, Conversations from the World of Heavy Metal and Beyond. Click the link on the banner on the website and you'll be taken to a marketplace of your choice. And you can download a sample. And if you do complete the purchase, hit me up because I want to thank you personally. And on that note, there's some more information to share with you to entice you into checking out the book. But before we get to that, I'm gonna bid you a fond farewell. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and I'm the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast. It's a very goodbye for now. This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew Mackay-Smith. I've been the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast since 2017. The first musician I interviewed for the show was David Vincent from Morbid Angel, and things have just snowballed from there. In all, I've posted almost 650 podcast episodes featuring conversations with many of the leading lights of rock, heavy metal, and beyond. It just got to a point where I thought, I need to write a book about all this, so that's exactly what I did. In Scars and Guitars Volume 1, you'll read a heap of deep reveals and commentary, such as Des Fafara, talking about Cold Chamber and why the band will never return. You know, if you're a, a band just starting out, you need to hear me. Do not start a band with partners. Ever. Yeah, wise words there. Sage advice, mate, for anybody. Don't ever, because I, I can't go do Cold Chamber right now unless I get others involved. Phil Anselmo talks about the episode in his career, which gives him the greatest sense of accomplishment. I think the staying power of the, the fans and the staying power of the... I, of the songs, you know, whether it's Pantera, Down, or Superjoint, the fans remember the songs. Alex Skolnick from Testament confirms that, yes, playing the guitar in Ozzy's band is anything but an ordinary gig. Will Silent Oz from Demu Borgir write a book? Pa from Sabaton gives advice to people who want to start a band. Look at the team around you, look at the bandmates. If, uh, if the guys want to be on the stage, then it's all cool. If the guys want to be backstage, then it's not going to be cool. Current and former members of Cradle of Filth discuss the band's seminal 90s material. Read about the reaction to George Lynch and Mark from Suicide Silence's comments when they throw shade at then-President Donald Trump. We have this idiotic monster, you know, this egotistical, self-aggrandizing, complete piece of shit in there I, I, I just i just can't understand how we've gotten to this place and yeah we kicked a hornet's nest with sepultura percussive overlord gene hoagland talks about recording with chuck Schuldiner. chuck was always um you know he was he was very you know very open-minded and and he was into having his his musicians that were playing with him 
just reach out for, for the best stuff that they have. Phil Campbell from Motorhead discusses what it takes to get sober. John Five answers his critics who dismiss his tenure with Marilyn Manson. You know, my name is John Five and Manson gave me that name and um, I had some of the best years of my life in that band and, and learned a lot. And we get the lowdown on Trey Zagtoth from those who would know, including his mother. All across Scars and Guitars Volume 1, there are moments of tension, relief, tragedy, exhilaration, and throughout it all, you'll obtain insight that I believe no one else has managed to obtain from many of your favourite artists. So treat yourself. Scars and Guitars Volume 1 is currently available as an ebook with a print edition on the horizon. Follow the links attached and download a sample. I'm sure you'll be compelled to read the whole book.